Welcome to Polycast, a civilization podcast focused on game strategy. Canis Albinas. Makalua. The main team. Mega Bears fan. Hello, Internet, and welcome to Polycast episode number 355. I am your regular co-host, Mega Bears fan, along with other co-hosts, Makalua. Still need, like, crap tons of caffeine. And super special guest co-host, Dan Q. Trying to thaw out. Brr. A little cold up there in Canada? Just a tad, but I mean, it is February, and I don't live in British Columbia, so fair enough. <laughs> <laughs> it kills all the creepy crawlies, you know. This is true. Less mosquitoes for you in a few months. Amongst other things. Yes. One of the nice things about living in the desert is not so many bugs. I'd ask you what are the uh, not nice things about living in the desert, but, you know, the show is only so long. Yeah, well, and one of those is the <laughs> bugs that are in the desert, so. <laughs> <laughs> we have less of them, but the ones that are here, you know, like scorpions and stuff like that tend to be kind of uh, unpleasant. Be happy it's not the Australian desert, because I don't think you'd like those bugs. No, not at all. But then again, I think in Australia, even the rocks are poisonous and will bite you. So, you know. <laughs> well, you know, you really have to be careful when you're stuck between a rock and a hard place. You know, you really got to. It's true. Look after yourself. Especially when it's an Australian rock. Oh, dear. So we are continuing our conversation with regards to the basics of Civilization VI. I know this started as a console school, but as I believe we mentioned the last couple of episodes, really it can apply to any Civilization VI player. We are going to cover vanilla Civilization VI release again more than three years ago, but also taking into account the Rise and Fall and Gathering Storm expansion packs, which if you're listening to this, you either have both of those expansion packs you may have one, or at the very least, you've heard of both of them. So hopefully it gives you an idea if you're still kind of holding out on one or both, whether or not you want to delve into that. And uh, we've talked about loyalty, which definitely has a tie into government and social policy. And we're also going to be talking about error score on this episode and reduced and re reduced. Well, no, not reduced, introduced rather in Rise and Fall. But really, you're starting out with Chiefdom, and if you're any kind of familiar with previous Civilization titles, uh, well, Chiefdom is familiar to you. And up until Rise and Fall, there were three tiers of governments in the game. The first tier comes at Autocracy... Wow, sorry. One of them is Autocracy, Oligarchy, and Classical Republic. They all come at pol uh, Political Philosophy Civic. And while the Chiefdom... Uh, government policy type, depending upon if your particular civilization is going to give you a military and an economic policy slot. Again, some civilizations vary that. As you go up the successive tiers, you not only get more choices of these things called policy cards, which you fill in for your government slots, but you also get more slots in total. But you also need to be taking into account what is your focus right now. Are you looking to do more military things? economic things, diplomatic things, or even these things called wild cards. And that will determine, in great part for you, 
what government you're going to be running at any particular point in time. In order to get these policy cards, in order to get to these governments, you need to be generating culture. And on a future episode, probably the next episode, we're going to be talking about a culture victory. But do not ignore your culture generation, which we've talked, which we've talked about before, because this is going to allow you to progress, which of course has a greater implication on everything that you are doing in the game. The Gathering Storm expansion pack introduced a fourth tier of governments called futuristic governments that arrive in the information era. Otherwise, you've got Tier 1 at Ancient, uh, in the Middle Ages you've got Tier 2, and then in the Modern Era you're going to have Tier 3. Tier 2 is Monarchy, Theocracy, and Merchant Republic, and Tier 3 is Fascism, Communism, and Democracy. I don't think our intention here is to start going through, here are all the different military social policies and what they do. I think that would be a pretty boring run-through, and without any, any kind of context in terms of what's going on in your game, the Civilpedia, in this case, is your friend. It documents reasonably well, again, depending if you're playing Vanilla, Rise and Fall, or Gathering Storm, what is going on. But do keep in mind that as you go through an expansion, that there are some changes that may have an impact on what it is that you are and are not doing. And I guess the other general thing to say about social policies is when you want to make a change to a social policy... When you successfully research a civic, you can make those changes for free. It does not cost you any gold on that turn that you discover a civic. If, however, you want to change your social policy while you're researching another civic and you haven't a, you know, researched a new one, a gather, uh, acquired a new one in a particular turn, then it's going to cost you X amount of gold, which, if I recall correctly, is based both on your game speed and at what point in the game you are currently at. Sometimes that may be cost prohibitive, so you just kind of want to keep that in mind. Anything uh, else? I also, just generally on yeah, uh, government. I was just gonna. Um, I was just gonna add that uh, you can also change your policies and government uh, at any time in which you unlock or uh, lose access to any policy slots. So if you build, like, say, for instance, a wonder that grants you an additional like policy slot, like for instance, the Forbidden City, I think, which is an extra wild card slot, I want to say, or the uh, Potala Palace, however you pronounce that, which adds a different wild card slot, or Alhambra adds a military slot, and then there's also a wonder that adds an economic slot. Uh, is it Big Ben? I don't remember which yes, wonder it was. Big Ben. Uh, but if you build any of those wonders, or if the city that had that wonders uh, gets captured and you lose access to it, uh, you will be prompted to uh, fill the empty policy slot or to change your policies. Uh, I think another way to trigger that is uh, if you if a policy becomes obsoleted. Yes. Which only happens on the civic tree anyway, so uh, I guess that's moot. Um, but yeah, anything that you do that adds or removes policy slots will allow you to make changes to your government and policies. So that's something that you can plan uh, accordingly for. Uh, the other thing to uh, keep in mind with regards to governments introduced in the Rise and Fall expansion pack is this notion of a new district called a government plaza. And the first tier of building you have within the government plaza will allow you to lock in what's called a legacy policy. Uh, I'm going to use a, a, an example. Uh, an example of that would be from tier one. If you are in oligarchy, right? That is the one that gives you the plus 25, uh, no, sorry, uh, the plus four strength for land and melee units. And yep. if you construct the government plaza while you are still in 
oligarchy and finish that first tier building, whatever that first tier building happens to be, one of the wildcard policies that you will see, even if you advance to another government type, and heck, even if you don't, you will see that come up as another option in the game, which can be quite powerful. For example, I tend to find myself going oligarchy in tier one if I think I'm about to be attacked or I want to attack a nearby neighbor because of that inherent uh, increase in strength plus the additional experience because plus 25% for units in combat. And then I typically find myself going over to Merchant Republic because we've talked about in previous episodes, gold is a very powerful mechanic in the game sometimes too much, but that's another topic altogether. Going into Merchant Republic for that, however, means that if you're not paying attention, you could lose that plus four if you haven't already gotten the government plaza and then gotten that particular building, and then you're going to be able to lock in that legacy card. Similarly, though, if you're in Merchant Republic and you've already got that tier one government plaza building, you get that next tier building in Merchant Republic, and then, hey, that legacy card also becomes available to you so you can it, it it's kind of nice in that sense because you're not come i mean you're leaving oligarchy behind or you're leaving merchant republic behind when you're going into tier three for example typically i'm the warmongering bastard so hello fascism for increased military production but you can take a little bit of that with you and that doesn't mean that you're always going to run it that doesn't mean that you have to run it immediately after you move and you can always swap policy cards back and forth if you want the only thing to watch for is if you're an oligarchy, say you switch to Merchant Republic and you want to go back to oligarchy, you're going to have a couple of terms of anarchy where you're not going to have any policy cards currently applied. I think the penalty is relatively minimal, quite honestly, but I also don't typically find it advantageous to be switching back. But it's one of those other minor things to keep in mind that I think as a newer player, or quite even honestly, a old hand player who makes that switch and wonders what's going on, what's this thing of anarchy that I'm currently seeing? That's what triggers it in the game. Yeah, and I would say that civics are uh, become often enough that uh, you pretty much never need to put yourself through anarchy uh, unless it's like a dire emergency, you know, like maybe someone's surprise uh, declares war on you and you need to switch from classical Republic to oligarchy to get a combat bonus. Otherwise you're going to get overwhelmed. Um, but other than that, like the only situation which I could see where it's probably going to be useful and worthwhile to go through anarchy by manually switching governments is maybe if you're playing on like epic or marathon game speed where you know it's taking 20 or 30 turns to uh to research a new civic and uh you know a lot can happen in a game of civ in you know 20 or 30 turns uh but if you're playing on like standard or quick speed i mean you're probably popping civics every five to ten turns so you're, you're probably better off just waiting those few turns to get the, the policy card that you want, unless, like I said, it's like a dire emergency and you need a change right now. If you're in Chiefdom, you'll have two policy slots to choose from. You'll have four at Tier 1, six at Tier 2, eight at Tier 3, and again, if you're playing with the Gathering Storm expansion, you will have the Futuristic Government, which gives you ten policy slots five of which at that point are wild, which makes it quite powerful. So sometimes you may be thinking, I actually don't want to switch from oligarchy to merchant republic right now because I want these dedicated military slots for <laughs> something. 
However, what I usually find happens is because the wild card, wild card policy slots exist, you might go from, again, a tier one to a tier two government, and it says, hey, I don't have as, military pol as many military policy slots as I did before, but then you can end up choosing one of the wild card policy slots, which again, when you get into the wild card slots, I find that proportionately in a game, I would stay in Merchant Republic longer, or even Fascism longer, if I get to that point in the game, than I would say an oligarchy, because when you have that wildcard policy slot, that can be a wildcard policy, or that can be any military, that can be any economic, that can be any diplomatic policy card going in there. Yeah, and because you get to, you have that, like, the oligarchic legacy, even if you go on and you stay in the Merchant Republic, you still get that, some of that effect with the plus four to the attack. And it, it, I think we've discussed that previously. Plus four is a lot more than you think. It doesn't look like much as a number, but in actual practice, that's a lot extra. So you can go on and enjoy all the research and other benefits, you know, of having that Merchant Republic <clears throat> and then have that still hanging on as a backup just in case you get attacked. And then at that point, if you had to, if you didn't already still have one swapped in, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, you could put in the... There for every era, there's a 50% off of the production cost card for military. So you, you still have the ability to pivot back into a war stance if you need to without going the full length of going back to the old government. And as of Gathering Storm, all of those uh, unit, era-specific unit and wonder discounts now apply retroactively to all previous era's uh, units and wonders. In, in the vanilla game, it used to be when you got the, uh, was it feudal contracts that uh, gives you the discount towards uh, medieval and renaissance units? Uh, that card didn't work for ancient and classical units anymore. So if you if you were powering through the civic tree, you unlocked uh, feudal, con uh, what is it, feudalism, I think is the technology that or the civic that unlocks that. If you unlock that policy card, you lost access to the uh, Agoji policy card. And if you didn't have the text for those medieval or renaissance units and were stuck still having to build ancient classical ones, you couldn't mm -hmm. get the discount. Whereas in Gathering Storm, they changed it so that, you know, feudal contract is now, you know, renaissance, medieval and earlier uh, units and similar things with the uh, wonder building cards where, you know, it used to be there was a, a, a wonder building policy card that was just for medieval and renaissance wonders. Uh, so if you were trying to build a classical wonder like, you know, Petra or something like that, uh, you uh, would not get the discount for that anymore. So there was actually like a penalty for going too far into the tech tree or into the civic tree because you would lose access to the uh, the policy cards that would benefit your uh, building the earlier stuff that you still have uh, unlocked on the tech tree. But, like I said, as of Gathering Storm, they changed that so that all of those policy cards now apply to everything at the current era and previously, so you no longer have to worry about getting punished if you're uh, building a lot of theater squares and powering through the civic tree, which uh, is nice, but uh, definitely makes those decisions on, on what to research and you know how to balance your civics and tech uh, a lot uh, less complicated. Definitely encourage players to be having a look at the social policy tree, just like they would be looking at the technology tree to decide what is it that I want right now. Is it worth it, for example, to get this particular civic that's two acquisitions out? Okay, that's going to get me, it's going to take me 10 turns. I, I'm, whatever the number happens to be, I typically play on quick or online speed. That's 10 turns, but you know what? I could get this social policy 
in three turns. But I would rather be, you know, that, that few turns ahead on the one that's 10 turns down than this one right now, not because it's going to give me another government typically, but because there's a particular social policy that I like. I'll use an example. I really like the social policy that gives you plus 100% uh, percent to campus adjacency bonuses. Now, of course, you need to take into account what you've currently got going on in the game. If you know you don't have very many campus adjacency bonuses, then that social policy slot running, it's not that it's not going to give you something, but choosing something else is probably going to give you more. But because I like to go for that, I am watching what it is that I currently have, and I will set. Like, like you can click on that one that's two turns out, and you will lock in, okay, it's going to research any and all prerequisites first, and then it's going to go to that one. The other thing to, I think, mention is the Dark Age wild cards that were introduced in Rise and Fall, because Rise and Fall introduced loyalty, it introduced the concept of Aeroscore, which we'll be talking about next. And at times, as long as you are in a Dark Age, you will be able to access these, and you'll be able to use uh, any one of these and it's typically, of course, limited by the number of slots that you have, because it has to fit into a wildcard policy slot. But the Dark Age ones can be extremely powerful. And to tie into what Jason said before, if suddenly you find yourself out of a Dark Age into a Normal Age, or at that point a Heroic Age, then you're going to be able to change your policy cards for free. Not just those slots that are now free, actually, but you can change any of them, because the game has now recognized you've lost the ability for Dark Age wildcards. So... Actually, having those Dark Age wildcards at times making having a Dark Age which has an impact on your loyalty potentially particularly powerful, especially if you're not too concerned about loyalty at that time. So there are lots and lots of choices. It's going to come through trial and error. And in a single-player game, there's these little things called autosaves and manual saves. You can go back and try again and see what is working for you. I think in some respects it can be overwhelming for a new player because there doesn't... I, I typically don't find, oh, you absolutely should be doing this and you absolutely should be doing that. So there's strategic choices to be made, but given the fact that you're attempting to play Civilization VI, this is one of these really powerful things to play with. And if you're not certain about wanting to do the math, you know, it's uh, like... So, for example, am I going to be any farther ahead if I adopt this economic policy versus that economic policy? And you can watch instantaneously, for example, your gold output in the top status bar, or your science, or your culture, and even your faith output. And if you notice a change going up or down, and you're, particularly if it's going down, you're like, oh, I don't like that then, again, you could always switch back the next time you get a particular social policy, or if it's really that bad, you could unlock it again the very next turn and change it back. So it's, you do have to it, kind of be careful with the with that though, because my experience has been that the game UI doesn't always update immediately. Sometimes you have to do something else to trigger the update uh, of the UI, including the status bar, and sometimes that means you actually have to go into the next turn before you see the change in your, uh, for example, uh, gold output. That so, is true. Uh, yeah, keep keep that in mind that the the changes that you make, uh, particularly via via the social policy screen, might not immediately be represented in the uh, uh, UI. For instance, uh, last night I actually had a situation where uh, I was low on amenities in like all of my cities and was getting you know the associated per, uh, penalties. So I went through all of the AIs and traded for a bunch of uh, luxuries. 
and when I exited the diplomatic screen, all my cities were still showing the little warning indicator saying that they don't have enough uh, amenity uh, until I opened up their build queue and added or removed or, or changed something in the build queue. And then the city UI updated and the little amenity warning disappeared for each city one at a time as I updated their queue. So, yeah, you have to... Um, be careful about things like that. You can't always uh, take what the UI is showing you as gospel, unfortunately. And if nothing else, then rolling over the turn, anything that the game hasn't processed in terms of the UI and updating the UI will update on the turn rollover. And as you were describing that, Jason, and mentioned that qualification, I thought of also if you adopt any policy card that gives you more of a particular strategic, strategic resource of everything that you have improved, that's not going to be reflected when you mouse over and it shows you how many sources you have and how many are available until you roll the turnover. And of course, that's regardless of what government type you're doing, uh, what the game speed particular is. That's just a air quote feature of the user interface. Yeah, I mean, that might also update if you, for example, improve another uh, copy of that strategic resource in your terrain uh, because that would probably force a UI update. But yeah, you, you'd have to either roll over the turn or do something else in the game that forces an update of that particular UI component before you'll see the change, uh, which uh, you know is unfortunate. It would be nice if the UI were always representative of you know exactly what's happening in the game right now. Another general recommendation for players, again, being a, a primer for basic and intermediate, is when you're looking at a particular policy card, and you're looking at what it gives you and it's giving you numbers. Generally speaking, those absolute numbers are going to be more powerful for you in the earlier to mid game, of course, as opposed to those that are based on percentages. And in that case, that can be a very simple math exercise. I think the primary example for me is with great people. Those initial uh, policies that you can get those wildcard policies at tier one or in some cases, you're going to be able to lock in some of those policy cards before you have a government type that can support it. I think that's kind of the development angle to try to get you to, yes, you want to get to that next stage so you can adopt it. That plus two, for example, great general points per turn can be very powerful in the early game, especially if no other civs are really going for that. So you could be generating great generals without having an encampment district, which is what you would otherwise be getting as a base for great person points. And the same with a great scientist. You can adopt that and not have any campuses and begin generating great people. But uh, a thing like that is to look at your total output in your empire and then be looking at what other options you can choose because, wow, if that increased my great general point output from one to three, that's really good right now, especially when you look at how many points you're going to need in order to get that great general whereas later on in the game it's like okay this policy card is giving me plus two of something but i've already generating 15 at this particular point in time wow why don't i turn around and adopt this other policy since it's a wild card hey maybe i would prefer to be getting uh plus 25 percent gold from cities that are not settled on my home continent because i'm going to get that much more in that particular game so it's also one of those things about revising those social policies, not necessarily just about, ooh, here's this new one I want to adopt, but just because you carried that policy over from one government type to another doesn't necessarily mean it's as useful for for you now. Yeah, like <clears throat> there's one that gives you the extra, the, the first envoy you get to city-state actually counts as two. So in the first part of the game where you're meeting a bunch of city-states and stuff, it's that's good to have in there because it's free envoys. 
but you get to a certain point in the game and you've done that and you and the AI have so many envoys, but then there's the Machiavellian policy, which is also in the same, uh, which slot? I'm going to call it the green slot because I can't remember the name right now. Diplomatic. Diplomatic. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> Brain went, what slot? But then you can switch out for Machiavellian, which means your spy actions take longer and you build spies faster because now you want to, you know, you want to get your spies and I go, uh, this isn't your city state anymore, you know? So as the game goes on, you have different uses for different things and you're always going to be rolling through different policies, you know, but you have to, you have to decide how long you want to keep a particular card before it becomes useless, so to speak to you. I mean, sometimes in multiplayer, I don't have time to look at them as much as I should. And there's just like, okay, just go to the next thing. But probably and, should and I would also, well, okay. more often. Yeah, I would also say that that uh, that charismatic leader uh, card uh, is that the wait is that the one that is it charismatic leader that grants you the extra? I think the so. Envoys? Yeah. Or, or, yeah, that, yeah, that one's kind of. Yeah, charismatic leader of political philosophy is the one that gives you plus two influence points per turn towards earning city state envoys. Ah, uh, there we go. As opposed to the oh, one yeah. that. What's as the other? The one? diplomatic league, which is the first envoy you send each city state counts as two. That's yeah, a very okay, opportunity that... cost one, right? Because diplomatic league, okay, that can be powerful, but that that's the first time you meet a city state, and we know how much the AI, the artificial intelligence, loves to go after city well, states. Number one, it's the <laughs> okay. It's not the first time you meet them; it's the first one you send to them. Sorry, yes, the first envoy you send to the city state, but yeah, uh, right. Pardon. But if you are the first person to meet the city state, if you do, you, you also get that. Yes. Then, uh, then that policy card a lot of times can be completely useless uh, because you you get that free envoy when you meet the city state, and you don't have those diplomatic policy slots unlocked right at the start of the game. You have to get to diplomatic philosophy in order to a unlock the cards, and then b have a government in which to actually slot them. So in most of the games that I play, I find that I basically can't even use uh, diplomatic league because I've already met most of the city states on my continent and already have at least one envoy with them by the time I even unlock the thing. Uh, but if you're playing on like, you know, some kind of like archipelago map, maybe where, you know, you're isolated uh, by water or you're playing in like an advanced start, you know, like a, you're doing like a classical start or a medieval start where you already have a government unlocked, then that can be a much more powerful uh, policy. But in most of my game experiences, I find that I don't use that one. I usually just stick with the charismatic leader, which is the two free uh, influence every turn. Yeah, unfortunately, when it comes to the interesting choices, when it comes to policy cards, diplomatic really kind of falls down here because those two are the only two that you're going to have in that particular era, whereas military and economic have more interesting choices for you and the nice thing about the plus two influence points is it's one of those things that you're getting passively it's not oh i got plus two influence points this turn i need to use them this turn or not there have been games where i have been sitting on six or more envoys because say you're playing on a terra map and they tend to put most if not all of the city states on their own landmass away from all of the other civilizations and then you meet these new civilizations and even if you're not the first to meet them you've got all of these envoys banked and also depending upon which government type you're in determines how many influence points you're getting per turn that can be a very significant boost early on that you can then gain access to that city-state suzerain bonus or even not either their you know their one three or six envoy tier 
very easily those things that give you passive benefits and also those things that can give you something right now. You know, if you're, uh, say, at the Cold War, you know, get the Cold War Civic and you can get 100% production towards modern atomic and information era naval units, excluding carriers, but... I don't know, you have no need to be in the water or you're intending to purchase them in the first place, that plus 100% is awesome. But in that particular case, you might be better off with something that's maybe not even percentage-based. So I guess the other thing it ties into that this has prompted me to think about to say is to take into account what you're planning on doing with that policy card and when. Because maybe you do want to adopt that policy card, but not right now. Or maybe you do want to adopt that policy card right now, but next time or you know two turns down when it comes to getting your next civic or two you'll want to swap it out yeah and a lot of the policy cards uh have to do with boosting production in cities you know so you've got all the the cards that are you know boosting military units or boosting uh you know various economic infrastructure or you know civilian units uh and when you're running those cards you do have to be very aware of what you're actually doing in your cities Right. Because if you slot in, uh, you know, say feudal contracts because you want to build a bunch of units, but you're uh, but you also are running serfdom in your uh, economic slot, which is the uh, two free uh, charges for uh, newly produced builders. Well, you can't build both a military unit and a builder uh, in any one city at the same time. Right. So if all of your cities now are building uh, swordsmen and uh, crossbows and uh, uh, pikemen, then your serfdom policy at that moment is basically being wasted unless you're you know, somehow getting the, the builders from other means, like you're buying them with gold or with faith or something like that. Uh, so don't run both of those policies at the same time if you're going to be dedicating all of your cities to building one of those things or the other. And even if you're splitting them like half and half, you're kind of playing uh you know not as efficiently as you could like it it might be better to just wait a few turns build all of your military units you know now and then when you're done with those military units you know then switch in surf them into that economic slot and uh, sure. and then build your builders and in the meantime while you're building your units maybe you're running something that like boosts your gold production or something like that uh so that you can then you know buy your builders and not spend time uh uh producing them with uh, production uh, because unfortunately the serfdom policy doesn't actually boost builder production speed. It only boosts the number of charges. Uh, so they're going to take a while to build. So maybe it is better to, to buy them with gold or faith. So that's something that you definitely need to keep in mind when you're planning out what policies you're going to get. Like you might be sitting there saying, Oh, I want units and I also need builders. So I should slot both of these in like that would make you know intuitive sense, but it might not be optimal. Yeah, it would also depend on the size of your empire. I mean, if you're able to say, okay, I'm going to build units in this one particular city because it is better for production generally, and of course your units are going to take, um, uh, oh my gosh, I wanted to say hammers, uh, more production, <laughs> uh, previous Civ games, uh, more production than, say, a builder, then maybe you're okay with running them both at the same time. Or, as Jason said, maybe you want to be running another economic policy slot, say, in that wild card or have a particular government type that gives you more economic policy slots so that, hey, while I'm currently constructing all of these units in the city, these cities, these have uh, encampment districts in them. And if you go in your head and you buy the barracks, hey, by the time that next unit is finished, it's already going to have that experience before it's even entered into combat before. So 
you have kind of used the economic to help the military aspect, and now when those military units are constructed and off to war they go, offensively, defensively, both, what have you, then you can switch into the that builder one, and I really, really like that builder one at a particular point in time, because that means then you don't have to construct as many builders, which means you're saving on production and or the gold cost of the builder, plus your the builder is already out and doing whatever it is that they are doing, and they're going to be able to get it done more quickly as well. So it's just kind of win, 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 aligning all of the things that you want to do. And this is the power that is the social policy. I mean, as much as you have to talk about the government types, and it's it's interesting, and we've had government types in previous civilization titles. This is the closest we had to the civics back in Civilization Four. only I find it's even more powerful than that because you get to decide the specific... Not so much the shape, the game decides that based on the policy slot, but you get to decide what goes in there in terms of, okay, everyone wants to try to improve their economy. Everyone wants to be trying to improve their military in some way, but what's the best for you? So what your oligarchic government looks like and what Jason and Mackey's look like can be very different from each other, and that is excellent for a strategy game. I would totally want to see this, for example, in a Civilization Seven or beyond. Something like that that gives you this power. Right. And uh, I would also like to say that, uh, in general, that uh, diplomatic philosophy or political philosophy, civic, uh, is like very, very critical civic. Uh, so if you are a new player and you are not sure what to, uh, what to research on the civic tree at the beginning of the game... Uh, my recommendation is to just open up the tree and click on uh, political philosophy and just beeline to that one to get your government as soon as possible. The only other civic that I could maybe think of that is maybe on par with uh, political philosophy in terms of early game importance is I want to say it's military tradition, which is the one that unlocks uh, flanking and support bonuses for your military units. Uh, which if you're having trouble with barbarians or you're planning on doing some early game war, uh, having that you know plus two bonus from support or flanking uh, makes a big difference. So depending on what you're doing, those two civics, I would say, are probably the most important civics to get as early as possible uh, in your game. Uh, I don't know if uh, Dan or Mackie, if you have any other particular civics or what, uh, whatever that you think are super important to get to. To me, not those two, and part of that is because in the era of the game that you're talking about, choices are limited because you're just starting out, and those ones, in particular political philosophy, is going to get you to the point of, okay, you already have an idea of what it is that you're doing, but there's nothing else that's going to compare in terms of now giving you the choice to start running other policy cards. You still have to make choices. It's not like you go from two policy slots to four policy slots, and therefore you can run absolutely every type of social policy that's available at that particular point in the game, even for any particular given policy card type, because that would not be interesting. But as the game goes on, I find it more difficult to say you should be going for this one specifically, because there's so many other things going on in the game that I think that makes it very difficult, and I would even say potentially problematic to try to tell someone you should absolutely be going to this more generally the what is it that you want to do 
Next, keep in mind what type of social policy you're thinking of. Uh, I want something to improve my economy. I don't know what's available. You go into the social policy tree, and they're color-coded. Mackie mentioned the green for the, diplo uh, for the diplomatic type. They're all color-coded. You mouse over in the social policy tree, just like the technology tree. It will tell you what that is. You do not have to remember that, okay, this particular social policy does that, and this is its name, and I need to remember its name. I mean, if you can, you will. Uh, Mackie, Jason, and I probably don't want to admit how many we know off the top of our head. You know, this this nerdy and geeky knowledge is, is nice to know, but it's not All necessary right. to know. You let the user interface, and actually the game's user interface really helps you in this respect to tell you what it is that this particular policy is going to let you do. And then as Jason said, you know, you can click on it, and even if it's not your next social policy, it will highlight all the prerequisites that you need first and i'll even tell you the order that it's going to go in and then you can go and grab what it is that you want yeah and uh i i think political philosophy is so important because it does unlock three governments all at once and there aren't any other civics in the game that do that all the other governments are you know they're one civic unlocks one government mm -hmm. uh yep. divine right uh or whatever it is unlocks monarchy and uh uh, mercantilism unlocks uh, merchant republic, so there there's there aren't any other like major bottleneck points in the civic tree where you're getting as much value as you get from political philosophy. So the only other one later in the game that I could think of that like might be even remotely like as important to to rush to or focus on getting is maybe the one that unlocks spies. Uh, you know, because uh, especially if uh, other players are using spies against you because you have absolutely no counter to that until you can build your own spies. Uh, but I can't really think of anything else that I would say is a, a super important civic that you like absolutely should get as soon as possible. Uh, so I don't know if the two of you have any ideas for anything like that. Not so nope. much because part of the thing is you have to stay flexible because you don't know what the game is going to throw at you. I mean, you know, this is a perfectly laid out plan, but the game is going to throw a wrench in it at some point and you, you have to not get hung up on the idea that, oh, but I was going to run X and Y. Well, no, no I'm sorry. You got to go back to the military stuff because you're getting attacked, you know. Right. Absolutely. Speaking of things the game can throw at you, here's a chance oh, for you go. to throw back. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> throw air escort back into the pond? What? <laughs> <laughs> no, air escort that got uh, added with Rise and Fall. I, I, I still have kind of mixed feelings on it. Not as much as the whole loyalty mechanic thing that came in, but because it can really kind of ruin your game sometimes. You thought you were doing great, but you're one point off of getting into the next era with a good score. It's like, nope, Dark Age for you. Yeah, I, I do like the, the mechanic in principle, and I think the implementation is pretty good, but I, uh -huh. I do agree on that point that I, I wish there were maybe like more granulated like breakpoints where uh, instead of there just being like a hard cutoff, you're in a golden age or you're not, like maybe there's like, I don't know, degrees of golden ages or something like that where, you know, having, because there's also the other end of the spectrum where like I needed- You massively overshoot. Yeah, I, I needed a hundred points mm -hmm. to unlock the golden age, but and I, I got like 180 because, <laughs> uh, because, you know, like it, I, I, you know, explored overseas and met all the new civs and got a bunch of uh, goody huts and maybe I conquered a civ over here and i built a wonder and like i'm not gonna not do those things because i'm already over the golden age era score limit like there I are get... some situations where maybe uh you know if if i'm like a few points over i might be like all right well i'll wait on building my unique unit like a few turns because we're going to cross over into the new era 
you know, in a few turns and from now. And it'll give you that great boost, but at the same time, you're also... Su- I, I get the fear about overshooting it because it makes the next era more expensive. And sometimes you can't help it and overshoot it because I, I mean, I know we store a lot of geeky knowledge in our heads, but I can't remember everything that gives you era score. And there's sometimes when you sit there and you go on a tear and you're just turning, turning it out and turning it out. You thought you had it planned so you wouldn't overshoot. Oh, I'm now like 40, 50 stupid amount of points over for this thing. And it's just going to be ridiculous. And it's like, why can't our excess supply, you know, like, like you're saying, why can't we have, isn't there, couldn't you have like a minor golden age and a major golden age or something like that? And same thing for the dark age. If, if you miss it by one point, why isn't it a minor? A, a, a cup or a bronze and a silver age, maybe <laughs> something, something like that. Yeah. Yeah. It, it needs, what or, we have is what, or maybe for the, the strength of the golden age to scale with how much over the, the goal you actually get or vice versa the uh the um severity of the dark age scaling with how much under mm-hmm. you're over so yeah there's still those hard cutoffs but you're still rewarded for going above and beyond or punished for you know being excessively bad but that, that's not the way the game works it's it's a real <laughs> binary scale you're either you either hit that threshold or you don't or you exceed the threshold so stupidly that it's like well couldn't i have banked these for next era why does it? If you're going to give me a hard point, why does it stop? Why doesn't it, why doesn't it just stop counting right then? And then you're pre-banked for the next era. Yeah, like, so so much of the game is designed around the earlier you do something or you get something, the better it is for you because of the the snowballing that happens, which we've mentioned in almost every single snow uh, show. Snowballing is an important thing in this game. So, uh, but then like the era score is kind of like one thing that almost kind of like undercuts that which is like yeah do do all these things as early as you can but don't do too much uh because then you might actually be uh setting yourself up for failure later thankfully yeah. there's no like you know we have the heroic age for when you go straight from a, mm-hmm. uh, dark to a golden age thankfully there's isn't like any kind of super dark age where if you go from oh, a golden age to a dark age <laughs> you, you get like the the super dark age and like your entire civilization just collapses <laughs> you reenact the fall of rome for example <laughs> yeah it just starts an immediate civil war <laughs> oh, uh, thankfully there, there is nothing like that so uh and and honestly the golden age and the dark ages by themselves aren't really that big of a deal like uh, it it's all it is is a modifier for loyalty and if you're not like expanding right now uh you know to new cities or like conquering cities <laughs> then the loyalty really doesn't matter well, all that much unless you have some like isolated cities here and there that are getting a lot of pressure. Then it makes a huge difference. Yeah, and the game does not care if you're crowded in on a map with everybody else. In that case, the loyalty pressure can cause friendly cities to flip you. And the game does not care if you're in the middle of a war when it starts your Dark Age and you were trying to t- conquer things. It's like, nope, Dark Age now. I'm in the middle of a war. Why would it start now? Why wouldn't it start until after I make peace or something? Ah. This comes up a lot in the multiplayer game. <laughs> I, I do like that the game is going to tell you X number of turns, like on the turn rollover, X number of turns until the next age, which you can also check by going into the lower uh, right-hand corner of the screen where you can see your uh, current era score. And you can also see a timeline. These, these are, by the way, we're talking about all these mini achievements that you accomplish during the game. And... It's kind of the the same concept as the Eurekas and Inspiration. So if you haven't played Rise and Fall, 
yet. It, it's a similar thing to the Eurekas and Inspirations, where it's a bunch of like miniature goals that uh, you can accomplish throughout the game, except you can do pretty much any of them at any time. They're not tied to specific texts or, or anything like that. So if you accomplish this goal, you get era score. And if you get enough era score, when the game rolls over into the new era, because eras in Rise and Fall and Gathering Storm are global instead of per civilization, uh, it's like based on, I think, the average era of all the civilizations in the game. So, or or is it once the first civilization gets into the new era, does it start the countdown? I forget how it works exactly. Uh, but yeah, it, it's it's based on it, it's an average, uh, a global average of the eras, and there's a countdown. And if you hit a certain threshold, uh, you go into a golden age, which gives you a loyalty boost. And if you're below a certain threshold. You go into a dark age, which gives you a loyalty penalty. And if you're in the middle, you get a normal age and uh, there's no uh, positives or, or penalties either way. I think one thing that would be nice, just like with the World Congress mechanic, where it tells you, you know, hey, there is going to be a particular uh, session next turn. Or the game would tell you, hey, so-and-so is about to win a particular victory in X number of turns. If you're on track to do something in the game, and I realize the game isn't always going to be able to, to track this, but it might tell you that, hey, you're currently constructing, I don't know, say this particular wonder, and it's, you know, this is going to trigger this particular error score for you next turn if you accomplish this. So if you're paying attention to your notifications, you don't want to Perhaps, oh no, I want to stay in a dark age because I want to keep the social policy because I am trying to win and I'm I'm okay with the penalty, but I want this increased combat strength. Oh crap, I don't want that now. It could then have you go in and change the build queue so that you're not finishing it until it rolls over. Because as, as Jason and Mackie are getting at, this era score thing is global. Everyone is going to enter and exit a particular era at, a, at the same time, regardless of where you might necessarily be in the technology tree or the civic tree. And I think that would help in terms of the planning when there are so many things that can trigger these historic moments. And also particularly on in the early game, because unlike when we were talking about social policies, where when it's you know early on in the game, pay attention to absolute value ones, and then look at percentage ones. There is no percentage historic moment. It is a flat value towards your error score. And if you want to have it so that, oh my gosh, in order to maintain a normal age next era, given what options are available during that time and what I've already accomplished, I'm not going to be able to do that, so don't give me a golden age this era. I would rather have two normal eras rather than a golden age and then, say, a dark age because of, say, the loyalty hit. Then you would be able to manage that more specifically, which I think would help with the, we really, really like this idea. We generally like how this is implemented, but with so much information to try to retain, don't don't block us from doing something, for example, but just give us that notification so that if we're paying attention, it gives us a chance to react rather than curse the fact that now it's kind of one step forward, two step back. I guess the other thing that's that's different with regards to the ages is potentially how many of these dedications you're going to get. And the particular dedication that you have for the era is kind of one of those you're going to get plus one era score for, for example, for completing this particular action. Is it every time you construct a trade route? Is it every time that you construct a district? And that is happening that lasts the entire era every single time that you do that because you are given the option to choose a dedication bonus that's going to last 
the entire duration of that era. And take into account, for example, hmm, well, I don't have a religion, so why would I adopt the dedication event that I'm going to get error score each time I convert a new city to my religion? I think with those kind of things in mind, I think that would help some of the angst that is the implementation of the historic moments towards the era score. But I love, again, like the, the Eurekas and the inspirations, that what you do in the game, do not do in the game, and when you do or not do something in the game actually matters. Yeah. yeah. Uh, it's, is, it's... is there a list in the Civilopedia of all of the um, historic moments that award era score? No. So this is one of those there things where I, I really wish the Civilopedia... Be. <laughs> the yeah. Civilopedia really should do that. I do not know why this is hiding it uh, from the player. So this is one of the things where, say, a Civilization VI resource, for example, the Civilization VI uh, Wikia, can come in handy because you're either going to have something that gives you one error score, two, three, four, or five. And the more error score a particular historic moment gets you, the fewer potential options there are in order to, excuse me, in order to get that particular error score. So you can find that online. I don't think us trying to go through um, all of them is a worthwhile exercise, but it's kind of like the social policy. It's, oh my gosh, for, for me, it's usually, oh, oh, I'm one or two error scores short. Oh, I, I don't want to be in, in a dark age. Or I've been pushing towards a golden age just to be one or two over. I don't want to be one or two short. And then you look in the list and you realize, hey, I haven't constructed my first naval unit yet. There's plus two error score. Okay, how many turns is that going to take to build? Oh, oh, I don't have time to build it. Oh, I need to get some money in order to be able to build build that. And so, that's actually uh, one of the things that I like most about the era score mechanic is that it actually puts ludic pressures on the player to uh, do things or play in ways that might be a little bit outside your comfort zone or your typical play style. So yes. it, it is a way of, of kind of encouraging the, the player to experiment with different things. Like if you're a player who never builds navies at all, well, here's a little incentive for you to maybe, you know, try building that galley you know, to get the few extra points to push you into a golden age. Or, you know, if there's wonders that you never build, like, but you need some era score and, you know, that wonder is available to you. Like, all right, well, maybe I'll go ahead and just build it. Or if there are certain places on the map that you don't ever like settling, uh, there are certain era scores for, uh, you know, like there's era score, I think, points for settling a city in a desert or along floodplains or next to a volcano. In the tundra. Uh, or, yeah, in the tundra. So places that, you know, might otherwise look like really shitty places to settle. Uh, suddenly, like you might be thinking, oh, well, that might give me just enough era score to uh, to keep myself out of a dark age. So maybe I actually should settle that that city there, whereas in, uh, you know, the vanilla game, you wouldn't even consider it. So that that is one of the things that I do like about the mechanic. And uh, um, also, we talked a lot about being annoyed with uh, overflow or the lack thereof. Mm. Uh, but to the designer's credit, I think that uh, a big part of the design of that is to be a rubber banding mechanic without actually having to rubber band, you know, like yields or something. Uh -huh. So it, the point is that if you do all of the things right away that, you know, push you well above getting a golden age, well, then you're more likely to get a dark age later, which gives the other sieves an opportunity to then take advantage and, and possibly knock you down a few pegs by invading you or flipping a, a couple of your cities via, uh, via culture. So it, it's, it is kind of nice in that it is a, uh, it, it seems to be intended to be a catch up mechanic 
but without being like, oh, this is behind, so we're just going to buff their science, you know, arbitrarily. It's something that you actually did to yourself, right? So there's there's player yes. agency involved, which I think is a much better way of implementing something like that than just arbitrarily buffing or debuffing a player because they're too far in the lead or too far behind. The other thing about error score is there are certain many achievements in the game that can generate error score for you recurringly if you do that every single time. I mean, Jason, you mentioned settling a city in a desert. Every single time you settle a city in the desert, plus one error score. Whereas, hey, you reached population 10 for the first time in your empire. You're not going to get error score for your second and third and subsequent cities reaching size 10. And right. fortunately, those that are recurring that you can do that, they're lower, lower on the error score generation. They tend to be you know, just a plus one, whereas some of the more significant ones, not all of them, but the more significant ones are two or more. And there are sometimes, sometimes, yes, you are going to get error score without even thinking about error score. Just like I think it's possible to think too much about error score. Oh, I should take this action because it's going to give me plus one. I think I should take this action because it's going to give you plus two. Anytime you're paying attention to one mechanic, absolutely, at the detriment of everything else, you're going to have to learn by trial and error in that case. Because, ooh, historic era is shiny and new. Hey, I can do this. Hey, I can do that. Hey, that's great that you you know constructed all of those wonders for an error score. I'm on your border. I'm just going to take them now. Hope you don't mind while you weren't building a defense. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, and, and just like with the uh, the Eurekas and the Inspirations, like you can just completely unknowingly trip over a lot of these era score uh, historic moments, like without realizing you were going to do that. Like, you know, say for example, you're going to settle that city uh, in the tundra because there's uh, you know iron there or something, and you need iron. Well, you're going to get era score from it. You'd be like, oh, okay, well, you know, that's nice because you weren't even looking at getting era score you were doing it for other reasons you know and then there's the things that just happen passively like uh your city getting over 10 population uh for the first time like uh, very rarely i think are you actually going to be sitting there watching your city grow counting down the number of turns <laughs> before you hit 10 population unless you're like waiting to build like that next district or something like that uh where you you need to hit that population threshold but so a lot of times things like that just kind of like happen like out of the blue and you're like oh oh, well, cool. Or if you already have the Golden Age uh, triggered, you're like, oh, crap. <laughs> yeah, oh, uh, crap. I didn't need extra points. Dang it. Yeah. And the game is good at notifying you about, oh, hey, you just accomplished this. Just in the notifications area, it will tell you. You mouse over, and even if you have multiple ones on the same turn, you accomplish this in brackets plus one error score. Mm? And there's even pretty little pictures. Yes, and you can go into your timeline, and you can see it is turn and year stamped. Uh, what it is that you did, there's a general description on the screen uh, that, that usually uses some kind of um, what I would call, call more qualitative descriptions. You know, when you can are, uh, complete every building in the campus for the first time, or a commercial hub, or whatever that district happens to be. I remember the Harbor one, you know, talks about, oh, you know, your sailors are singing shanties, and you're thinking... Okay, that's nice. But then yeah, there's still a, not a flavor. What, yeah, there's a flavor to that, which is nice. But if you're like, oh my gosh, keep that to yourself. What did I actually do? If the description doesn't tell you on there, just mouse over it and it will give you the specific game mechanic. You did this for the first time. You did this. It gives you a specific number. So you can know in future, okay, this is what this does. Because quite honestly, uh, you know, playing with historic moments for the first time in Aeroscore. I learned a lot about, oh, 
I just passively got that. I wasn't purposely going for that. And I think that's okay because when it's something that you have done, oh, I completed all the buildings in the campus for the first time. I, I thought that it in itself was a reward because, hey, I'm getting more science generation. Okay, fantastic. The only ones that I don't like, and I know we're kind of be going beyond a basic primer here, are those things that particularly happen on turn zero. Like, say, if you're the Aztecs, for example, you start with your unique unit, which is an Eagle Warrior. The game gives you plus four error score for constructing your first one. Um, what? Or, hey, did you know you're the first to explore this continent? I just started here on turn zero and the game decided that. You know, <laughs> or, you know and it's just kind of like, huh? Like, I understand, for example, the, hey, I'm near a natural wonder, you choose to settle within two tiles. Okay, that's a specific action. Yes, the game kind of helped you do that, and right from the beginning, because that's where it placed you, but it's still an action that you had to take. I would really like just some of those ones to be tweaked, because even though it doesn't happen that often, particularly when it happens early on the game, it feels kind of cheap to me. It feels, again, that you, there was no player agency. You just happened to luck skill into it. And well, that's, in the case of the Aztec, the player agency was you picked the Aztec. So not, I, no, I, not necessarily. You might have randomed into it. See, I, well, uh, but then you could you could argue that you chose random. So uh, it's, to me, something like that is basically it's just an extra, you know, silver leader ability is, hey, you just start the game with this, you know, head start on era score. So I, it doesn't bother me as, as much as it seems to bother you. I would be fine if it was, hey, the first time you construct, or even the, hey, you started with an Eagle Warrior. You know, hey, the next time, you know, you build one in your city, now you can get an arrow score for that. See, that would be a very easy, to me, easy enough change. So I guess it is kind of getting under my skin a little more than it's getting under Jason's. What about you, Mackie? Sometimes. <laughs> I mean, it just depends on, I don't know. It's just the, I guess it's the attitude individual game. Sometimes it's doing that stuff to me and I'm like, why did you do this? I had a plan. Or multiplayer, it's just like, uh, okay, thanks, I guess. Yeah, I mean, even in the random situation, if you uh, random yourself into, say, Korea, hi, Korea, and okay, <laughs> you're, you're going to, the first time you construct your unique campus, you're going to get an error score for that. And it's like, okay, yes, you randomed into it, but you still had to take that action. You had to construct a campus. Or even if it's uh, maybe because you are the Aztecs and there's a unique unit, maybe you don't start with that particular unique unit. You start with a scout, for example, um, you know, and then it's like, hey, if you want that error score, but I think the better way to go about it is fine. You've got that particular unique. You chose that specifically. You knew about it. You randomed into it. But when you take an action, then you've taken ownership over that historic moment. And it's, hey, I've actually done something purposely. Now, you're probably not going to say, you know what? I, I want to give the plus four error score back. And there's no way to, to do that <laughs> in a particular game. But yeah, there's certain things like that, like the unique buildings and unique units. And you know about circumnavigation and you can sort of plan around those things but there's so many smaller ones you totally forget about i mean because I, I we can't retain all of the ones that they'll give points for and i don't want to penalize a player because hey you launched your civilization's first satellite into orbit you get an error score oh shoot i didn't remember that well then you shouldn't get an error score no you're yeah. being you're being rewarded for something that you've done in the game that's that's and that's my other than the 
again, hey, maybe a notice that you're about to complete this, you're about to get this error score. If it doesn't matter to you that by completing this action, you're going to get this additional error score, then that's great. You just keep going ahead. But to kind of avoid that, ah, crap, you know, how am I ever going to possibly maintain a normal error? Because all of a sudden, it just overshot me by, you know, five or ten because you all, you know, several things all of a sudden lined up at the same time, which, yes, occasionally you you do want. But it's just kind of those, as I said, that initial thing that just makes me go, oh, but quite frankly, if that's what I am complaining about in terms of the mechanic, then I think it's in pretty good stead. You know, it's not like we need to go back to the drawing board. It's just a little finesse here and there. And hey, there's still time. And from a UI standpoint, uh, something that you mentioned earlier actually is an improvement over the Eurekas and Inspirations, which is that uh, if you highlight over the historic moment in the timeline, it will actually tell you what you did to trigger that. Whereas when you get the little pop-up saying that you've made a Eureka or Inspiration, it only gives you the flavor text. And there's nothing to highlight over that tells you what uh, the actual condition that you met was. So there's a lot of times where I get the Eureka or whatever, and I'm like, what did I do to trigger this? And then I just close it. And if you want to find out, like you got to go into the tech tree and actually highlight over the tech in the tech tree to to see what the heck it was. Whereas at least the historic uh, era score timeline, uh, you know, gives it to you right there. And the only thing worse than that in terms of what the heck did I do is completing a city state quest that you had no idea what it was. Because you can go back to the city state and it's, oh, you've accomplished it. You have abs- you might not have any idea knowing what it de- was because, okay, my civilization just accomplished five things this turn. Wh- which one was it? Yeah, because it tells you at the beginning of an era when they update their quests, but after you complete it, it's just like, what did I do? Uh, you're welcome, but okay. You know, it's just, all it needs to be in that case, and this is kind of tangential to the era score, but it's kind of this kind of thinking about give the player the information just tell me, just add to the text, hey, you got plus one envoy, in bracket, what did you do? Oh, okay. Well, I did that? Well, all right. You're welcome. Yeah, and in some cases, you're going to be like, oh, cool. And in other cases, you're going to be, oops. Oops, I didn't mean to make you happy. I'm about to attack your buddy there. Well, if, whoa, if you turn around and attack your buddy, that sounds, I don't know, like a disaster for somebody, either for you because you weren't prepared for the backlash, or you because, you know, you thought you were their buddy. Yes, but there aren't just player-instigated disasters anymore in the Gathering Storm expansion. Now there are actual weather and random uh, disasters that were introduced in Gathering Storm. And so now we're going to talk a little bit about uh, some of the tips that we have for dealing with those, because these uh, can, in some cases, be uh, game-making occurrences. Uh, So examples of uh, disasters include things like the flooding of floodplains will happen periodically. Uh, a volcano will erupt. Uh, volcanoes are new to the Gathering Storm expansion. Uh, you can get hurricanes. You can get droughts. You can get Arctic blizzards. Uh, am I missing anything? I think that the swarm of tornadoes. Yes, that's right. The tornado swarm. And um, what these do is they'll pillage or For certain very severe disasters, they might completely obliterate improvements. And they'll also pillage districts, uh, which is a pain in the butt, because as we've established in, uh, I think, a couple episodes ago, repairing districts uh, takes an unusually long time. Uh, And uh, they can also damage units and damage uh, or kill population. So... 
Uh, you know, these are things that you do need to watch out for. And basically, each of the types of disasters is kind of tied to uh, a specific terrain or a place on the map. For example, uh, obviously, volcanoes appear on the map as volcanoes. This isn't Civ Four. Random mountain tiles will not just suddenly explode <laughs> and turn into volcanoes. The volcanoes are placed at the start of the game. You will know it's a volcano from turn zero. Uh, Speaking or... of Eris, Court goes, you're brave to put that there. Here's some points. <laughs> yes, <laughs> so that, is, that is one way to get Eris score is to put, put a city within, I think it's two or three tiles from uh -huh. uh, a volcano. Um, and then, yeah, there are the floodplains that flood. Uh, obviously, uh, Arctic blizzards only happen on ice and snow tiles. Hurricanes spawn in the middle of the oceans and then uh, come inland to hit coastal cities. You're not going to get a, a hurricane in the middle of a Pangea, uh, obviously, but you might get a tornado in the middle of Pangea because I think tornadoes uh, spawn on grasslands and plains. Uh, primarily, and then uh, they can um, the tornadoes and blizzards and storms and stuff like that and hurricanes can actually also move uh, each turn until they eventually dissipate and go away and they can leave a path of destruction or a trail of destruction uh, in their path. Um, thankfully, however, uh, damage to improvements can be pretty easily repaired uh, with the builder and it doesn't even cost a charge. So my biggest uh, tip for dealing with disasters is uh, after you use two builder charges to make improvements, maybe consider just parking that builder near a city on a floodplain or a city near a volcano so that if the disaster does happen, uh, that builder is right there, eager and ready to go repair anything that was uh, damaged. You could do that. I, I think we'll we'll disagree on that only because I would rather have that builder go and improve something else. If it happens to be, say, uh, a flood, for example, and there are improvements that have been damaged, then, okay, yes, I'm going to lose, say, X number of turns uh, while I go and construct that builder or just one turn to go and buy the builder and then I'm buying a builder instead of something else. But I think because, as you said, it, it does not take a charge and it shouldn't take you too long to construct a builder. And it's not going to take too long for the builder to get to wherever the event happens to be. I mean, if there's a blizzard out in the middle of nowhere where there's no cities, then, well, who cares what damage there happens to be? Then you can go ahead and, and uh, improve that. Although certainly if you've got nothing else for your builder to do at that particular point in time... Um, and also taking into account, you know, there are different disaster levels as well. You know, if you've racked it up to, say, frequency four, then maybe you would like to have one builder that you could situate centrally within your empire and then just be constructing other builders with other charges. And, you know, it's kind of six half dozen of the other. I guess maybe I don't object or disagree as much as I initially. Implied. Yeah, I, and, and I, I actually yeah. do uh, typically play with the disaster intensity set to three, which is one point above the default value of two. So I probably do see more disasters than uh, the average uh, Civ six player, especially in multiplayer. Uh, so yeah, maybe uh, that's, you know, a bias on my part because of the way that I particularly set up my game. And I think that's important to note that the 
the intensity level because that level increases not only the frequency of the disasters but also the severity of the disasters. Difficulty level has absolutely nothing to do with the disaster rate. The only kind of human interaction, you know, as global temperatures rise, and the, the difficulty and the disaster rate can certainly compound each other. Uh, they if oh, have, definitely. If you have a high disaster intensity, then you're, you know, the game will indirectly be harder because more of your stuff is going to get damaged or destroyed over the course of the game. And uh, it's going to be a lot harder to deal with that because sometimes, like I said, uh, an improvement might be completely obliterated by a severe disaster, in which case you do then have to spend a builder charge to go out and rebuild it from scratch. Yeah, you can keep a guy on hand that's only got one charge left to go around and do the basic repairs, but they're, yeah, they're still being those points when, like, if you haven't built a dam and it decides to do a major flood on a river, oh boy. The other thing I like about disasters in this game, and just to be clear, just because you put the disaster at zero, it's disaster intensity. You're not disabling disasters. It's just... <sighs> but one oh, of the nice things about... There... I didn't even know that. Is there a, a checkbox in the setting somewhere to actually disable disasters? Because I had no. assumed that disaster zero was no disasters. So I just no. learned something. There you go. Yeah, no, disasters cannot be completely disabled. I typically run it at zero or one because I generally find it I generally find it a distraction, but at the same time I like in a sense that I couldn't turn disasters off because there is a benefit to having a disaster hit you. Yeah, and there's so many mechanics that are built around them that you can't like disable all those mechanics and so many things would just be pointless if there were no disasters and we'll get to some of those the nice thing about some of the say the flooding or the volcanic eruption is the tiles that are around maybe it's uh, maybe it has damaged unit it is or excuse me damaged an improvement it is possible that it's going to damage or even kill a unit and you may even find that oh my gosh my city strength just went down particularly example as a result of a flood early on in the game you don't have a dam and the fact that dams exist for that that is a protection against that potential so it's a choice that a player can make you can be proactive rather than reactive but the reactive thing that i like is if the tile is not improved or even if it is and you go and repair it you may have increased fertility on that particular hex and so now and improving is... or repairing that tile will also be a source of era score Ding. so to tie into <laughs> <laughs> you read <Yeah>. my mind <laughs> yeah the, congratulations you've repaired this after your people are and sometimes if you go settle in an area that had a disaster right afterwards you're brave to go settle there here's some era score uh and just to clarify with the damaging units uh any unit that's caught in a disaster will suffer around 50 percent damage to its health with it if it's already damaged then that could be a problem, but an outright killing of the unit, that can only happen to a civilian unit. So if you are keeping a builder around to, say, mm, repair after flood, don't don't put it in the in the floodplain. Yeah, yeah, don't put the builder on the floodplain or next to the volcano. No, 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 no. Put, it, put it in the city <laughs> yes. where... Uh, I, I, do they get damaged if, or destroyed if they're in the city when it happens, or in a district even? I'm not sure. Uh, not in this, not in this, uh, oh, that's an interesting question because the flood could impact, in fact, uh, impact the hex that the city is on because that's when Correct. you get a loss of population as well as, uh, a loss of, you know, like garrison strength. So or if, for example, you built the city adjacent to a volcano, which is probably a little too ballsy, I would advise against <laughs> yeah. building the city center adjacent to the volcano. Uh, yeah. The only exception being there is a, a governor uh, who neutralizes the damage of disasters. And if you put that governor in that city, then you're, you're, you're fine. 
And that would be, of course, one governor at any particular point in time. And the governor has to be promoted to a sufficient point to do that. So, uh, and tying back to Aeroscore, if you, you know, settle, but it's within two hexes of a volcano, you're still going to get the Aeroscore. So it's kind of like, you're close, so it's going to impact you. So you don't have to put it right beside the volcano in order to get that Aeroscore, thankfully. Because I think really these disasters are a much better implementation than the civilization for random events. I mean, they were called random events and they truly were. It had little to nothing to do with what you were doing, or at the very least little to nothing in your control. And the effects of it were often immediate and substantial. And, oh my gosh, how am I possibly supposed to recover from this? It can happen with disasters, again, introduced in the second Civilization VI expansion pack, Gathering Storm. But even if there's not something you can do to mitigate it, it's like, well, the game started me on a river. Okay, I got flooded. What else was I supposed to do? Where else was I supposed to go? Wait well, six, seven you, turns to, 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 to settle so. somewhere else? I mean, no, you, you, can, you can deal with it. And it's, yes, you're going to have to take action, but it's going to be relatively minimal and you can get something from it. For example, increased fertility on those tiles. Yeah, and, and one thing to point out as well is that uh, it is not the case that every river can flood. The flooding only happens on floodplain tiles. Yes, yes. Aaron droughts are only mm. going to affect plains and grassland that have no woods or rainforest. Right, so even if your city does start on a river, if it's not on a floodplain, then you're not going to get uh, a flood in that uh, on that. Uh, the only other disaster, which is... Uh, the more kind of man-made, uh, in addition to the global temperature rising, increasing the CO2 level, you know, hello, coal factories. Um, there's this thing called a nuclear power plant in an industrial zone that, uh, you know, reactors age. And if you do not run the city project in order to renew that, then as the reactor age, there's an increasing percentage chance that there is going to be fallout from that. And then tiles are going to be radiated and they're not going to be usable and you're going to go and have to in and, and clean up. But again, with that particular type of disaster, that was a choice that you made. And it wasn't just because you built the nuclear power plant. You know, I don't think for You also neglected it. You neglected it. It's not like Fraxis is making this big political statement about nuclear power plants are bad, so you're going to get this. It's you didn't take care of business. Um, so take care of business and you will avoid that. Now, the thing about the rising CO2 levels, uh, that is not something that you're going to be able to control completely because it is going to affect you and everyone around you. Even if you are contributing no CO2, it has to do with your neighbor. And for example, <laughs> uh, World Congress measures, mm, World Congress, and this other little thing called, I don't know, um, declaring war and, you know, or doing something about it, you know, just a very general abstract thing. There are things that you can do, but do be aware that what you are doing or not doing in a particular game, you know, like you start going and chopping down all these woods and rainforests, you're going to increase the likelihood that you're going to have a drought, um, which is also a tie into realism. And normally I'm kind of a, oh, not realism at the expense of gameplay. But there are gameplay things that you can do, if not proactively to deal with it, because it's not particularly the practical, if at all possible. At least you can react. You can react relatively quickly. You can gain something incrementally from it. You know, there is a potential reward for responding to that. But the consequence is not also, well, I just need to restart now, because what am I supposed to do? This, this is not Civ 4. 
Well, and it's also uh, uh, the, the chopping causing uh, uh, droughts and, and stuff is also a, a check on the power of chopping because, you know, one of the uh, big things mm-hmm. in the meta for Civ Six is uh, you should chop uh, like everything. Uh, in fact, I think some players even recommend like harvesting every resource that you can possibly harvest early in the game. Uh, again, because of that snowballing, the earlier you get those benefits, the longer uh, you're going to have to play with them. Uh, so getting a lump sum of production now and finishing a building or a district early is better, perhaps, in many cases than uh, just getting the one production or two production or whatever per turn over the course of the entire game and then still having to wait for that building to get finished. Because if you finish a campus district, for instance, you get the science from that campus right now and you get the great people points from that campus right now. Uh, so... Uh, the fact that you that chopping actually can increase the frequency or severity of disasters means, well, I don't know, maybe now you want to to think about it a little bit more. You know, maybe uh, you're better off putting a lumber mill there and not risking having districts that you worked so hard to rush uh, get pillaged. <laughs> or you decide, ah, this planet is doomed, and hey, look, I still have some forests and. Uh... <laughs> jungle on the on the map. Hey, I'm gonna go and I'm gonna chop that, and that's gonna translate into uh, space parts. Right, so can, and you can only chop. Oh, it translate to giant death robots. Oh, that too. <laughs> right, and another thing too is is kind of a, a subtle uh, corollary of this mechanic is you can only chop or harvest a tile once. Right, so uh, once you do that and you get the production or whatever from it, if a disaster comes along later and pillages the tiles. Well, now you don't have the production necessarily to rebuild it. So, you know, it's uh, there's even more of that cost benefit analysis, because now in later on down in the future, uh, it isn't just opportunity cost of not getting that yield per turn. But there's also an actual risk that if the tiles that you rushed by chopping or harvesting get pillaged, you now don't have those forests providing the extra production uh, to um, uh, repair them. Uh, but there's also uh, other ways to mitigate disasters. Uh, we alluded before that there's like certain infrastructure. Uh, so, for instance, uh, a couple that I can think of is uh, the, the biggest one, of course, is going to be dams, which you can build over uh, on floodplain tiles, which will uh, eliminate the damage that is dealt from the flooding. But the perk is that you actually still get the extra fertility. So it reduces or eliminates the penalty, but still gives you the uh, the bonuses. Uh, in addition, I think dams also have like adjacency bonuses with industrial hubs and stuff like that. So even if you never actually get a disaster, there's still you know some small benefit to uh, to building them. Yeah, and you uh, get the hydroelectric power when you get to the point where you have you need the power for your industrial zone and stuff. So then you're doing that, and you're not burning coal and things, and you're not making it worse. <laughs> Right, and and we mentioned before that yes, you can trigger global warming in this game, and we talked about uh, like some of the effects of it, but we didn't really talk about the cause. And the the way that you trigger global warming is or the way that you release CO two into the into the game's uh, world is by either building power plants that burn fossil fuels, that's your coal plants and your oil plants. Uh, I don't think the workshops or factories generate CO2, but I, I could be wrong on the factories. Yeah, um, so hydroelectric plants and nuclear plants uh, are clean energy, which I think do not 
uh, emit any CO2 into the atmosphere. Maybe the nuclear plants emit like a tiny bit. I don't remember. Yeah, it's sure. mu- it's a much reduced from what it is. And even going from coal to oil reduces it. And then oil to nuclear, it's just the tiniest bit. And then you can go into all sorts of clean power stuff. Right, yeah. And then uh, <clears throat> later in the game, you can also build improvements, which are solar farms, wind farms, and a geothermal plant on certain tile, which are also all clean energy improvements that power the city. And the function of power in Gathering Storm is that certain buildings have extra effects if the city has power. So a factory, uh, I don't remember the exact difference, but it's something like you get a small amount of production for building the factory, but then if the city is powered, you get even more production per turn from that building. Uh, So that would be why you would build um, power plants. Uh, And then in addition to power plants, Uh, Another source of carbon emissions in the game is units. So any unit that consumes a fossil fuel resource, so that's coal uh, and oil, uh, will actually emit a small amount of CO2 uh, into the game every turn that it exists, whether you're using that unit or not. So if you just build a massive defensive army of tanks and you park them in all your cities and you don't ever use them to attack anyone or defend, uh, you're still emitting CO2, uh, because I guess those tanks are just driving around, running drills, or going to the fast food restaurant, uh, and and bringing uh, 100 quarter pounders back to the uh, base. I don't know what they're doing with those tanks. We're subsidizing our military by using them for Uber Eats runs. Yeah. yeah. This this vision of a whole bunch of tanks sitting at an intersection waiting for the light to change. <laughs> right. And almost every uh modern military unit or later like consumes some resource whether it's coal or or oil. So having a modern uh military uh even if it is just a defensive military is going to contribute a lot to uh global warming. And as global warming gets to certain thresholds, there will actually be tiles in the game that will flood and anything that's on them will be destroyed. And that tile will not be usable for the rest of the game. And the only way to prevent that is to build flood walls in your cities, uh, which will uh, prevent that. But only if you built them in advance. You cannot build the flood wall after the tile has flooded. Uh, it does show up in the uh, definitely in the settler view mode when you're trying to start a city. It will show you that like this will have like a little wave icon. And sometimes it's just one wave icon. Sometimes it says two or three. And that's telling you how many times the sea is going to have to rise to flood that tile. I can't remember if it tells up when you're trying to build districts to tell you that as well. So you might not want to build like, you know, your campus out there it might get good research because you're close to the Great Barrier Reef. But when the flooding starts, uh, there went your science. Right. Unless you do, like I said, build those uh, those flood yeah, walls. The sea walls. Uh, let's see. Is there any other disaster prevention or mitigation infrastructure in the game that we're forgetting? No, nothing in terms of the mechanic. I just kind of go back to, you know, your own made disaster when you declare war on somebody you shouldn't have. But that's, that's <laughs> a different, it's a different, it's a different type of disaster. <laughs> that's an ouch my face. Yep, indeed. Uh, and yeah, the global warming can be uh, a, a big problem because not only does it flood tiles, it also increases the frequency and severity of the disasters that are happening uh randomly over the course of the game anyway so um those floods that used to be pillaging uh you know two or three tiles uh if global warming is running rampant those floods will now not only be pillaging them but they'll be destroying them uh and they will uh damage more tiles and more population and so forth so 
Uh, it's definitely something to look out for. Uh, and uh, if you're going to be pumping a lot of uh, CO2 into the uh, game, you, you might want to make sure that you have a path to victory already laid out <laughs> so that uh, those disasters aren't just like completely uh, destroying you know, whatever plans you might be trying to make. Uh, you know, I, I try to avoid going overboard until I'm, you know, real close to a victory condition so that I don't end up having that victory condition derailed because, you know, a hurricane destroys all my spaceports or something like that, you know? What is also really nice that the game will give you long before you're having to worry about CO2 emissions is the game will tell you, hey, the first time sea levels rise, uh, this is going to be underwater or the second time or the third time. And if that happens to be a really important district for you, and I guess the primary one I'm thinking of might be, I don't know, your spaceports or two. Mm -hmm. uh, but I mean, you know, at that particular point in the game, okay, you're building space where you're probably thinking about that. But if you're thinking about constructing a campus and I see that, you know, I can get a plus two adjacency here and I can get a plus two adjacency there, but that spot is going to be underwater because it happens to be on the coast. You know what? I'm going to choose a different hex. Yeah, and I think most people would say that, oh, by the time it gets to that point, okay, it floods one campus, that cannot be repaired, you cannot use any buildings in it, and yes, this also includes the city center, no, you don't lose the city, it's just that, you know, uh, many particular... Now it's on an island. <laughs> yeah, no, yeah, exactly. Now now, now it's Kevin Costner's Waterworld, only with a much smaller budget. And <laughs> I, I really like that because it can help you plan, but it can also make a decision for, uh, actually, no, I'm not going to settle there. Or again, I'm no, I'm not going to put that there because the game will tell you that. And you will also be able to check the user interface to see, you know, polar ice caps. Uh, you click on that emission, then you can see what's going on with that. Uh, some data anyway, near the upper uh, left-hand corner of the screen. Uh, click on that and it will tell you who the greatest CO2 contributor is. So if you're like, who do I go and smack around for this output? It will tell you, this is their output. Here is the total output. Here is your contribution. Um, uh, other things that you can do to try to mitigate some of your CO2 is there is a CO2 uh, recapture uh, project, uh, SETI project as well. And there are also certain World uh, Congress events um they're not projects but to try to get people to reduce uh, their carbon footprint and that can have an impact on how other civilizations relate to you just like there's certain civilizations in the game that are not going to be particularly happy if you're chopping down all these woods and forests yeah yeah coupe. yeah coupe yeah. coupe yeah i'm looking at you um i chopped down start I'll chop, yeah. I chopped down one forest in 2000 BC. Leave uh -huh. me alone. He'll hate you forever. <laughs> <sighs> so I guess the nice thing about, quote unquote, the nice thing about that is that the mechanic is not just in isolation. It's also tying back to other things we've talked about on previous episodes in terms of primers. Back to civilization agendas. Back to diplomacy. Back to world congress. Back to life back to reality. Oh, wait, this is not the 1990s. Uh, yeah, no. and, and one other thing that you can do to try to control uh, CO2 emissions in the game is uh, there is a World Congress resolution that comes up periodically that allows you to ban the construction of buildings within certain district types. And uh, one of the ways to combat climate change would be to ban industrial hub buildings because that's where all the power plants and stuff are. So uh, and it's especially beneficial if you've already built all your power plants 
and you're basically just stopping everyone else from building theirs. Uh, so you get to have your cake and eat it too. Uh, At least the, until the next session. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah. Uh, on the other end of the spectrum, there are even you know ga- uh, situations or scenarios uh, in the game where it might actually be advantageous for you to accelerate uh, climate change. Uh, for example, if you're, you know, away from the coasts, but you notice that the, the <laughs> civilization that is like maybe the most competitive with you, uh, you know, uh, but they happen to have a coastal empire, like, you know, maybe it's Coupe or it's Dido or it's Harold, uh, Hardrada or someone like that, that likes to build a lot of coastal cities. And a lot of those cities are in coastal lowlands that are going to flood and your cities aren't going to flood. Eh, I mean, maybe you basically sick <laughs> global warming on that other player and uh, pillage all of their districts. Uh, permanently, especially if they make the mistake of doing things like building their spaceports on a coastal lowland tile. Uh, and the earlier you do that, the less likely it's going to be that they're going to uh, even have the technology to build flood walls. So, uh, yeah, you could use global warming for, you know, diabolical evil purposes uh, as well as, um, you know, just accidentally destroying the world. You could do it on purpose. Hey, the game is giving you choice and choice matters. <laughs> <laughs> that's one hell of a choice yeah you wow. can play Civ 6 as a Bond villain if you want <laughs> if from the ancient era to the modern it's true hey you're not settling on the coast don't you want access to the water oh I'm going to give you access to the water uh, well, another Janice fish being Bond villain this has has yeah. I'm Oxaluna that was Dan we've forgotten a number thank you uh, being a Bond villain in Civ 6 civilization 3, 4, 5, 6 and beyond earth sound clips copyright take 2 interactive copyright the polycast at thepolycast.net <laughs>